Boys and girls, thank you for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. Listen, you need to go to our YouTube channel right now. Season 2 of The First Family of Waterfowl is out now. Every Thursday, 7 o'clock, a brand new episode releases. We got a couple more in the can for you guys. Uh, it's been a great Season 2, so go over to our YouTube channel right now and hit subscribe. Watch all those videos because it's been a lot of fun. And I guess we're brought by Stanfield Hunting then, right? Sure. I've got a few dates left in November, and I've got a few dates left in December. And we've got some dates in Nebraska. I think I've got six days left in Nebraska. If you want to go shoot some mallards on the Platte River and shoot some big geese, holler at me at 940-658-3172 or reach out to me on any social media you need to at stanfieldhuntingoutfitters.com. Also, we are brought to you by our brand new sponsor, MLR Graphics in Breckenridge, Texas. They do all of our work, they, all of our shirts, caps, cups. They can do stickers. They can do it all. Coats, anything you want, that's mlrgraphics.com, and that's M is in Mike, L is in Leroy, R is in Red, mlrgraphics.com, or you can holler at them at 254-559-1108. They have a 10% discount for all churches and first responders. Great Christian-owned company. Highly recommend them, MLR Graphics. And then we're brought to your friends at Boss, bossshotshells.com home of the Stanfield Nines, home of the War Chief. It's time for that War Chief. You need to get there and get a hold of them. 12-gauge, 20-gauge, 28-gauge, your sub-gauges is the way to go. 410s, that's BossShotShells.com. I guess everyone in the country, there's a 410 shortage right now. That's what it sounds like. But Boss has some 410s. Boss has 410s. So if you're a 410 shooter, call them up up there at Boss. Uh, tell them the Big Honker guy sent you, or just head over to their website and click order. It's that easy. BossShotShells.com. We're also brought to you by the boys up there in the Pacific Northwest, PacificCustomCalls.com. You can find all of their new stuff. They've got uh, a couple new goose calls out. They've got the uh, BBS for Speckabelly Hunters. they got the BBG for you big goose hunters, and that one's going to run pretty sweet. I got it for a groomsman present from Blake, so I like it. Uh, my favorite is still the BA Lesser Call and the PCD Duck Call. Can't go wrong with any of them, but uh, yeah, give them a holler and they will be happy to set you up with whatever you're looking for. Great company, great people, PacificCustomCalls.com. We're also brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. It is time for you to get skinny. It is ridiculous having a messy trailer. I personally cannot stand a messy trailer, so that's why I like silhouettes because they bag up nice and nice and we've got a great storage system. So my trailer stays clean all season long, uh, bag them up. They've got great flocking on, on all of their decoys. They've just come out with a fully flocked speckle belly decoys. So if uh, that glare, that that early morning frost is giving you hell, you might look at the uh, fully flocked speckle belly decoys that are out now. Divebombindustries.com. They've also got great floaters. Divebombindustries.com. The best part about a dive bomb decoy is, is the weight. If it's wet and sloppy and you got to carry something in, you can carry five dozen decoys pretty easy. No problem at all. Also, we're brought to you by Dirty Duck Coffee. If your coffee sucks, it's not the duck. It's how we get our morning started out here every single day with the Missouri Boat Ride Blend. Uh, and listen, warm temperatures are still prevalent here in the south, and I'm still sticking with my 3.30 p.m. cold brew coffee. And every once in a while, you know, Dad's got to put a little bit of Put a little bit of liquid courage in there. A little bit of liqueur 43. Uh, Jay was telling me how to make this at uh, Squad Fest this last year. So, you know, when the when you get a case of the Mondays, make you a little cold brew, put a little bit of liquor in it, and uh, it helps helps give you that little boost that you need. But 
listen, for those a.m. early morning wake-up calls, they got a high-velocity blend, lots of caffeine in it, perk you right on up. Uh, sun's out, guns out. They've got a brew for everybody. Whether you're a dark brew kind of guy, a, a light brew, whatever it is, they've got a coffee for you. Just head over to their website, dirtyduckcoffee.com, and you can get ordered and, you know, ship straight to your door. You don't even have to get out of your pajamas. Have quality coffee right there at your doorstep. Dirtyduckcoffee.com. And we are also brought to you by Shin Gear. Listen, they have revolutionized the waiter game, and now they are making, they, they're expanding their reach. They're now making jackets. They've got bibs out that I wore all season last year. The bibs are phenomenal, totally waterproof, totally windproof. Uh, they're great. I hunted them, hunted them in the rain a couple times, stayed bone dry. Do you yeah. like the shirt, Jack? Jack shirt's out now, so that's really cool. Um, they got something for everybody. Whatever you're looking for, if you need to stay dry and warm, shingear.com has got a product for you. And if it's wet and you're a farmer, well, if you're a farmer and you work outside and you're in the moisture, the Scout Boot. Absolutely amazing. They have not made a product yet that I've been like, ooh. Not yet. Hadn't happened yet. So shingear.com for whatever you're looking for. Also, we're brought to you by the Looking Glass Podcast. Logan and Rebel put on a hell of a show. Go over to Patreon right now. And type in Looking Glass Podcast and pay the subscription fee, and you are off and running. You can listen to all the debauchery going on with Logan and Rebel and uh, whatever guests they have for the week. But a lot of fun. Makes those long road trips very manageable. You listen to a couple Looking Glass Podcasts, and then bam, you're there. So great people. Looking forward to hunting with them again this year, and go check them out. Looking Glass Podcast on Patreon. We're also brought to you by the Lucky Duck. They have got a brand new spinner out there. It's black and white on the wings. Creates more contrast when that thing's spinning out there in the decoys. It's easier for ducks to see. It's easier for birds to see off in the distance, the black and then the white. That contrast is really going to pop. Everything Lucky Duck makes is a home run. Their A-frames are great. We hunt out of them seven days a week, and they they stand up to the torture test. I mean, they're, that's really all that you can say about them. They're great. Uh, they hold grass well, and they hide four grown men. There's no squeezing. Everything is plenty spacious in the in the uh, two-by-four blind. They got stuff. If you're a varmint hunter, they've got uh, e-collars. They've got everything that you're going to need. So check them out, luckyduck.com, and... Have it all shipped to you. Also, we're brought to you by Ducks Unlimited. They have put ducks back into the sky. They're fighting for duck hunters every single day of the week. It's fundraiser and season, too. We would not have ducks in the sky like we do now if we didn't have Ducks Unlimited. Fundraiser season. Go check them out. There is a DU banquet near you somewhere. Go and buy some raffle tickets off Pretty Girl, win a gun, win a trip, buy a decoy. <clears throat> because all that money goes to the Ducks. Don't spend all your money, though, because Into the Vault will be back right before Thanksgiving. So save a little bit of cash for Into the Vault, because they got a lot of cool stuff coming out. We're also brought to you by Double T British Kennels. Mr. Corey has just had a brand-new litter of puppies, and he had a couple extras. So now is your chance if you ever wanted a British lab, if you ever wanted a dog from Double T British Kennels, now is the time. Give Corey a shout. <clears throat> Message him on Instagram. Send him an email. Uh, his, what, his phone number's on his website. He's an easy man to get a hold of. But if you've ever wanted a British lab, now is the time. Get a hold of Corey, and he'll get you set up. Great dogs. They're great citizens. They're great hunters. Hunted with two of them last year, and they're sweethearts, but they are lethal 
in the field. So, Double T British Kennels. We're also brought to you by Mossberg, maker of the 940 Waterfowl Gun. It's what we shot all last year, and it holds up to the rigors of hunting season. Seven days a week, dirt, mud, wet, dry, did not seem to matter. I wish we would hunt the snow, but that never happened. Uh, <laughs> the, the Pro 940, it is a great waterfowl gun. It can handle whatever you throw at it. And it's what all the big boys shoot. Matty Robertson shoots it. So, like, listen, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for you. Don't sleep on the Mossbergs. Check them out, Mossberg.com. And if you see them at Cabela's Bass Pro, put them to your shoulder. Give them a little test run. They're good little guns. We're also brought to you by Alpha Outdoors Specialties. They have got a blind caddy out now, and I cannot wait to run this all season long. I'm going to be extra organized. My trailer's going to be organized with Dive Bomb. And my blind is going to be organized with the blind caddy from Alpha Outdoor Specialties. They also make the Stanfield stool. No more buckets for me. I'm saving my back this year. It's going to happen. Uh, they can, you know, if you've got a, if you've got some nifty idea that's going to revolutionize the waterfowl world, get a hold of them at uh, Alpha Outdoor Specialties. They can do a mock-up of it and away you go. We you might be sitting on a million-dollar idea. You don't even know it. And they've got some benches that's got the Millennium boat seats on them that we have at the lodge. they got two chairs in each one. Absolutely amazing for your backyard, your back porch. They're comfortable, waterproof. Jump on them at alphaoutdoorspecialties.com. Also, when you go to Alpha Outdoors and you get the Stanfield stool, you get to hunt with them up here. It's what we'll be using on all the blinds this year. And the blind caddy Andy is going to wear out. There you go. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Hemp Hill Farms, taking care of all of your CBD needs. You are getting older, let's face it. The algaes are piling up. Your neck is stiff. Your back is sore. Your knees are aching. Hemp Hill Farms has got a CBD that is out there for you. They've got a great, uh, they got a roll on. I've got something going on with my ankle. I roll that CBD on. Pain goes away. It's magic. They've also got a salve that you can, uh, you know, you can rub it on your hands and put it anywhere that you need it. Uh, makes those ouchies go away. Makes getting older a little bit less sucky. So head over to Hemp Hill Farm, uh, farm with a P-H is what it is, hemphillfarm.com, and they will ship straight to your door. They've got a lot of good uh, savings for first-time customers, and there is also a promo code that you can use for us. BHP will save you some money at checkout, but head over there, whatever you're going to need, take care of the ouchies. Hemphill Farm's got it for you. All right, this episode of the podcast, we are joined again by Phil, Dr. Philip Lavretsky and uh, Mike Brasher of Ducks Unlimited. He is a senior waterfowl scientist over at Ducks Unlimited and Ducks Unlimited and UTEP, Dr. Philip Lavretsky, they have teamed up and it is going to involve the you guys, everyday hunters. It is your chance to contribute to science and a better understanding of the ducks that we all love to hunt. You can go to duckdna.com and get signed up for this program. It's totally free. There is no risk at all. This is your chance to contribute to the science that uh, goes into ducks. So uh, interesting, interesting podcast, Duck DNA. And it is live and it is ready to go out there for you duck hunters. I'm always blown away whenever I talk to these people that... Uh, you know, are smarter than me, which is most people, but I've never felt dumber doing a podcast than when I talk to these guys. So uh, enjoy this episode. Here they are, Philip Lavretsky, Mike Brasher. Go get signed up, duckdna.com. Contribute.
welcome to the Big Honker Podcast brought to you by Ducks Unlimited. I'm Jeff Stanfield with the world-famous Andy Shaver. That's right. And we got a whole bunch of people on the line with us today. We've got Dr. Philip Lavretsky. we got Mike Brasher from Ducks Unlimited. Uh, we got a cool new project going on here, guys. So uh, Duck DNA is live now. Now, this is not just for hybrids, right? If you've got a cool duck, like you're wanting people to send it in. That's right. Yeah, you got a cool duck. You got a duck that little Jimmy or little Susie shot the first time ever, and you're going to mount it or maybe not. I mean, we're, you're going to get a nice certificate at the end, be like, congratulations, you shot a with a percent of X and Y. You know, just like if you had sent your own DNA to 23andMe or Ancestry.com, that's what you're going to get. Okay, so what is the overall goal of this? I mean, are you just are you wanting more hunters to be uh, taking interest in kind of where their ducks are coming from? Are we looking at this as uh, what's the what's the ultimate goal here? I mean, in my mind, this is the largest citizen science project in in particular in wildlife and wildlife genetics and wildlife conservation. Uh, this was a brainchild of Mike and I, and uh, with DU, thankfully coming on board this is something i've been wanting to do something i've been trying to like peddling kind of through you know sprinkling hunter uh, uh samples throughout the time when i could and obviously funding is always a limiting factor and this is something that's going to open up the door to get data at, at landscape and time intervals that we could could not imagine and so hopefully not only are we pr providing going to be providing some information about you know your favorite duck um, but we're going to be able to start studying these populations, also including hybrids and why hybrids are in particular areas, but also why are certain ducks migrating at certain times? Why are they using certain habitat? We're going to be able to get that genetics that is so foundational to make sure that we know what we're working with. And once we know, you know, foundationally what we're working with, we can make better understanding and better science uh, to why those those individuals are using particular landscapes and blowing that up, we can then uh, uh, focus those areas for Ducks Unlimited and other partners uh, interested in understanding where should we put money on uh, on the ground, on the habitat. Uh, this is just another layer of information that's going to be critical to those kinds of decisions, especially as land prices go up and urbanization continues to sprawl. My question is, how long is, let's say I shoot a hybrid duck or just shoot a green wing teal or whatever it is, and I send it to you. How long until you get the data back from the DNA? Because everybody thinks a ratio just goes down and pushes a button and you've got a murder subject right there. And I know it doesn't work that fast. Boom. Your baby daddy is. <laughs> yes. X. No. Um, so, yeah. So, this is our pilot season. Uh, everybody's going to have to bear with us. So I'm sure it's going to get real Western of how we're going to get everything done. We've got good ideas. Obviously, not always good ideas come to fruition in, in real time. But in general, we've got the workflow to get you to get the DNA uh, analyzed, you know, DNA extracted, uh, sequenced, analyzed within basically nine to 10 days. Now, that's all going to be, uh, 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 you know, depending on how the sequencing cores are, are, are working, if, as long as they've got places to put our samples in, you know, that's, that's, that's up to them. But then on the other hand, 
Uh, by the time we get the analyses done, we're going to have to put it into a nice PDF and a nice certificate that's going to go mailed out to you. And that's going to be a cooperation between Ducks Unlimited and ourselves and how that data flows. You know, we've got a good idea, but in essence, we're hoping for two weeks, give us three weeks, but you're looking at no more than a month that you're going to get your data back. So we're going to try to get this streamlined. And obviously this year being a pilot season, and obviously as long as we have lots of uh, participation and interest, Hopefully this will be forever, um, and 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 we're going to continue to develop tools and methods so that way we can streamline that process. And with the eventual goal of like you getting data, you you getting knowledge of your duck within a week or two. But again, this year, give us three three to four weeks, and hopefully we'll we'll give it to you earlier than that. But I, that's the idea. I've got a duck on our mantle in there that I think is a mallard green wing teal cross, and okay. But it's been mounted for it's ten years old. Is there anything on it you can use for DNA, or is it way past that? Yeah, no, we we could definitely do that, but that's going to take uh, some additional analyses that are not part of this. This is going to be kind of what we call historical sampling. So I don't want to go into the weeds here, but we're doing that with seven hundred historical mallards from national museums, right? Everything from eighteen hundred to today. It just takes more nuance because that stuff's been sitting there. But more or less, if you cut off a little piece of uh, the the webbing, uh, we could do it, but there's a higher price point for that. Okay. <laughs> so walk me through how this works. And it can either be you or Mike. I don't really care. So on the website, it says 300 people. Is that what we're cutting this off at? Uh, Phil, you'll need to take that. Yeah, you do it. Okay, so the website is www.duckdna.com. Uh, should be simple enough to remember. And you go there, and there's opportunities, uh, several different places where you can click apply today. And so by applying, you are not guaranteed to, to receive one of these kits. So we, our target for this year is to collect 1,500 tissue samples, and each kit is going to contain five vials. So you do the math. That means up to 300, sort of a maximum of 300 participants this year. We have no clue right now how many people we're going to have sign up and apply. Uh, and so the way we're going to do this is come the first, second week, or probably the second week of October, we're going to look to see how many people we've had apply. And if we've had a sufficient number, well, regardless of how many have applied, we're going to make an initial selection of participants at that time. Those people will then will be emailed, notified that they have been selected to participate. We will then direct them to go back to the website to create their own personalized duck DNA account where they will provide us with a mailing address and maybe a few other bits of information at that time. That gives us the, the address that we have to have to mail the kit it will be mailed out. It contains five vials with a buffer solution in it, uh, infographic instructions. It'll include a little duck DNA logo sticker. Uh, it includes alcohol wipes, everything you need in order to complete the, the sampling. And and we want sort of one of our founding principles for Ducks Unlimited to get involved in this is, is if we're going to do it, it's going to be smooth for the user. We want it to be professional. We want it to be almost foolproof. You know, we don't want to send something out there that, that the users that are hunters struggle to figure out. It includes prepaid return postage. So it's going to cost absolutely nothing uh, this year. And, and we don't, we're going to try to do it again next year. We hope that we can keep it uh, free of charge again next year. 
And so, yeah, the instructions, that, that's sort of the initial step. And then folks will go out and go hunting, collect their, uh, the, their birds. The instructions are to take some tissue from the tongue of the duck. There's sort of a story behind why we've done this. Uh, last year, I went out in the field. I'm, I'm a duck hunter, and so I took some head fill, send me some vials, and I said, look, if we're going to do this, I want to walk through the steps a year in advance to know what hunters are going to be dealing with whenever they get this stuff. And so that allowed us to begin thinking about all the hurdles that we might encounter, and we wanted to eliminate as many of those hurdles as possible. So collecting tongue tissue is going to be is what we're recommending. That way, if you get a hybrid and you want to have it mounted, you don't have to cut into the tissue to get the get muscle meat or anything of that nature. You can just cut from the tongue. Um, and you you do not have to, you know, once you if you collect one sample, put it in the freezer until you are able to collect all five. Then once you collect all five, um, send it back in using that prepaid postage. The only thing that we didn't provide that folks are going to have to come up with is some kind of tape to reseal the box whenever they send it back. But we are counting on hunters to be able that to do be that. Easy. You, you would, well, I don't know. I've seen some yeah. waterfowl hunters and <laughs> yeah, that gets a little dicey. Um, so tell me about why the tongue. I mean, I, I know nothing about, you know, g- collecting DNA samples or anything like that, but, uh, the tongue seems, uh, tongue seems interesting. Easy to get to. Easy to get to. That's, that's the basics of it. Yeah. So before we, I was, um, when a hunter would, would come to me and be like, Hey, I got this interesting duck or I want to, I want to provide you some samples. I'd always have them, um, open up the breast cat, uh, breast area and then take out some breast meat, right. And put that in. But that takes uh, time, especially if you're going to mount it, and and then it's me working with a taxidermist, and that also takes more time. And so we started thinking about it, and the easiest thing is to open that mouth, clip off like the first quarter inch of the tongue, and throw it into the vial. Of course, we wanted to make sure that actually worked. One one reason that I was concerned was that I thought we were going to get too much like food particles. You know, we're sequencing too much through their diet and other stuff, and I'm sure we are. But the nice thing is. I've now done several comparisons of uh, different tissue types, wing, muscle, tongue, and we're getting the same results. Same ancestry calls, same DNA, you know, quality and quantity. Um, so I'm pretty confident that, you know, I'm sure we'll have some fails if people leave it out in the sun, you know, degrades it and this type of thing. And But, but my guess is going to be the same as before, and our failure rate is less than 1%. Yeah um with good dna especially with this new buffer that we're using and yeah it's i i've been really really happy with the results and so that's why we're moving forward with it it's much easier uh it's faster and the results are identical so nothing to complain about now let me ask you all this whenever somebody did shoot a, a fun duck or you know what even if it was just a, a regular duck or you know whatever if somebody wanted to get dna testing done on a duck before this did they just have to know one of you guys or, or send you an email or something like that yeah, have email me. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would do them no good to uh, get in touch with me because I am I do not I am not the geneticist. That is all right. Phil. So nobody yeah, would so, ever call me wanting that information. During hunting season, Mike and others at DU and at Cal Waterfowl Association, Brian Huber and every, I weekly I would be like, hey man, I got a buddy that's got this weird looking duck. Can you do something? And I'd be like, of course I can. Just send it over. Um, but the problem was always that I, ha- I had to continuously like sprinkle it across all these studies, wait for studies, wait for the funding for those studies. So time could be anywhere from a month or less if like all of a sudden I have space for that to a whole year. Right. Because it's not like 
anybody's paying for, we're paying for those. So this is huge for this partnership between DU and ourselves. Um, and, and especially this year and hopefully the upcoming years to make this free to the user, which are the hunters, giving them a sense of, uh, of responsibility, getting them some product, but also making them, you know, hunter scientists. I mean, this is, I think this is the, the coolest thing. I mean, it's, I'm super excited about the whole project and I hope others are, are just as excited about learning uh, about that duck that's about to go up on that wall. Okay, Dr. Phil, I got a question for you. As an uneducated Yo. redneck, I do not understand how this DNA process works. I understand it show. I, I know what it does, but how in the hell do we figure out DNA from a human being, a duck, whatever it is, and how what it is? Because there's got to be a code that's a master code for it all. There is. Every single living organism on Mother Earth is coded by the same four values and they're called amino acids so they're they're a a g c and t adenine guanine cytosine thymine so that those are the th those are the four building blocks of all of life and if you just change those codes you will change like from a fish to a human it's quite simple that in, in that sense um and so that's it so once we figured out that there were you know decades and many many scientists that figure took time to figure what that thing was and then once we did and the new technology where we could amplify that dna right so every one of uh, you know if you uh you know murder scene only a couple of drops of blood it's good it's not a lot of dna so we had we needed methods that we could what's called amplify the genome so we can actually like what's called sequencing i'm not going to get into any of that so both of those those technologies took time to develop, especially the computational side of things. Now, fast forward to 2023, we have insane computers, insane sequencing technologies um, that are that are rapidly advancing. And so we've come to a point where these technologies and these methods aren't just for humans and and like you know quote unquote important things as human. As people think they are, um, and 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 we and that's where I come in. I I I work on what is known as non-model systems, right? Model systems would be like, you know, your rat, uh, uh, some guppy fish, and uh, a few birds uh, that have been studied for eons or as long as we could. And so, so now we're applying it at the wildlife field, at these wild systems that be you know uncontrolled in the in nature. But now we can harness that those technologies and those analyses that have been fine-tuned on things like humans um to understand all of life well my, my question is you've got a cinnamon teal and you've got a green wing teal yep yeah how much difference is the dna between the two and how the hell did someone figure out that's the master code for that's a cinnamon teal so if it's a hybrid between the two of those have a kid have a, an offspring correct yeah yeah, so so it's it's quite simple. So throughout time, uh, there you well, uh, green wing teal and cinnamon teal actually that the, the only the reason they look the same is what's known as convergent evolution. They're not actually sister species. So cinnamon teal, blue wing teal, and northern shoveler are the closest related individuals of that group. So at some point there was this blue wing ancestor. Let's just talk about let's let's say if you've got a spoony cinnamon teal or cinnamon teal blue wing teal hybrid. At some point that that that's that species invaded new habitat. 
And because they invaded new habitat, there were new pressures of ecology, like eat this way, look this way, uh, females not choosing you unless you do these things. And that essentially cha changes the frequency of the code that's inside all of these ducks. And those changes eventually led to what we consider now and what we see as a cinnamon teal or a bluing teal or a northern shoveler. And so because through eons of these like competitive situations that then change the code, that then change the plumage, right? Imagine if a female is like, I want you to only look red, or I want you to have a really fat bill, or I want you to have that cool blue head with the, with the white in it, right? That's what was causing the changes. The ancestors sort of had the genetics and those, select, that, those selective regimes, both ecology, competitiveness between males and males and males and females, then push that code to this, those differences. And we can now compare that code. And because, because those codes are now different today, we can then say, oh, that genetics is only found in cinnamon teal. And that genetics is only found in blue winged teal. And this individual has 50-50 of all those codes. We know that's a first generation hybrid. And those ancestry changes, uh, uh, you know, 80-20, 75-25 can tell us something about the generation of those hybrids. Like how, you know, did that hybrid, you know, that male hybrid then breed with a blue or a green, blueing, blueing teal, their kids would become 75% blueing and 25% cinnamon teal, right? Basically, every time they back cross, they're kind of putting in that that lineage that lineage's genetics back into the genome. Wow, we're going like way deep into That's this. That's fine. More or less, if you've ever done 23andMe and it says like, oh, you've got 2% this and 4% that and 10% that, that is because there are particular signatures. Wow, I don't really want to get into this either. But there are particular <laughs> signatures uh, in genetics of people, right? People, people moved about the country of the world. And again, you know, people moved into out of Africa, into uh, the Northern Hemisphere, and then into the South Pacific. And there are particular bits that are good in those ecologies. And those differences throughout time allow us to describe population genetics of people. And that's why 23andMe and others can do what they can do, because there are those differences. If they didn't exist, it, it would just simply be just a single population. You know... I love how you say you don't want to get into this. I'm fascinated by it all. So, I mean, the, the deeper down the rabbit holes we go, like I'm fascinated with how we took, you know, these, these things and they've all, now we've got blue wing teal from the shoveler and now we got shovelers and cinnamon teal. So like you go as deep down this rabbit hole as you want to go. I'm, I am here for the ride because I love it. So. Yeah. So imagine like two minutes. So imagine there were, at some point, there were ancestors between pintail and mallard, yeah. right? And at some point, those females, for some reason, started picking like a thing that had green, more and more green in the head. And another thing that kept picking for a longer and longer tail, right? And through a million iterations of that, those kids will keep getting greener. And those, uh, the other kids kept getting a longer tail and, you know, white in the head, you know, what we consider a pintail. And those those differences have genetic components that explain that. Right. And those are the di and because the genetics explains all of these things, and we know there are these differences, 
we can then find those genetic differences and then use that as a reference set to under, to then compare anybody and be like, what are you? Right. But it's not, but Phil, it's not just the sexual selection pressure, Correct. right? It's foraging pressures. It's Eco like all ecology. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, if you migrate, if you're migrating in mixed flocks, if you're migrating in North America or in Eurasia, the pressures, the food types, the wetlands, the timing, all of those things through a million iterations, two million iterations eventually lead to these distinct features, both what we can see and what we can't see in the genetics, but now we can. You know, I got in a lot, I caught a lot of heat on the last podcast for using the E word. Which E word? Evolution. I, 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 don't get me lying. I don't know. It's a, it's a, that's a, it's a, it's a tough word to use in a crowd of some people, but yeah, you, I, I said, uh, I use, I can't remember what I asked, something about, I, I don't even remember, but I used the E word and I caught a lot of heat off of that, but I'm like, so they don't think there was evolution ever. Well, they call it adaptation. So, so to me that play to, on to, words. to me I mean, it I, seems like splitting hairs. I felt like I, I felt like I was getting crucified for no reason. To be honest with you, adaptations lead to evolution, right? Uh, let's say again, an adaptation to adaptations. All adaptations are are things that limit competition, mm -hmm. right? If I forage an hour before you, I don't have to compete with you. If I forage an hour after you, I don't have to compete with you. If I forage the first four inches of a wetland versus, and you forage the bottom eight inches of a wetland, we don't compete. It's all cool, right? Adaptations allow us, allow organisms to, to lessen competition. And that results in evolution because eventually things split. And because they're trying to lessen competition within, they become different right. through time. And again, I know it's really hard to think like, well, I can't, I'm not, I'm looking over there and there's two squirrels fighting over uh, uh, some bread. It doesn't look like adaptation. Well, do imagine if that squirrel beat the other squirrel and had two extra kids because they got that food. Now their genetics is twice as strong that, as the other one, right? Or two, whatever. Fecundity is higher in the one genetics over the other. And then simulate that 2 million times or a billion times. Eventually, it go and, and it always ebbs and flows. Evolution ebbs and flows. Speciation ebbs and flows. It isn't just static. Uh, if, it, if you're the optimum, and all of a sudden, because you're like the optimum for the ice age, like the mammoth, and all of a sudden, it gets real hot. You're no longer the optimum, are you? Right? This ebbs and flows, and this is, that's evolution. What, what about like the Labrador Retriever? They've got webbed feet. That's a, that, that comes from the Labrador dog, right? Am I, am I off on this? Because you're laughing at no, me. No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, we could we could bring artificial... That's what is known as artificial selection because we could just say the fact is if people didn't take in that first wolf one way or another, depending on the hypothesis you, you, you ascribe to, there would be no Labrador retriever, right? And so what a Labrador retriever is is fast-time evolution because it's people picking that they're doing what nature does, but at a very fast pace, because it's like all of you that didn't retrieve a duck, you're dead. I'm only breeding you two. That's real fast, right? In nature, it's like, it doesn't really work that way. It's more like, well, you're sort of better than all these others, but they did survive and have a few kids. So that's why it takes so much longer. For us, it's like chicken, you laid nine eggs and you laid two eggs, you chicken that laid two eggs are is gone. Mm -hmm. Right. We're frying right, your ass. 
we're frying you. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about the, the Labrador Retriever? Those got webbed feet. When did that? How did that take place? Bec- I. I, I imagine what happened was uh, there was a lineage of dog, probably somewhere in Britain, that swam pretty good. And then they just, uh oh, then they just kept breeding on things that swam better. But again, it's because people are picking who's mating with who. They can push those phenotypes faster, right? So we know there's dogs with partial web feet, right? So that, so that I'm sure at some point, People just kept seeing like, oh, that one, like the early lab probably didn't have complete webbing. And so then, I don't know what they called it then, but eventually it turned into what we consider the lab, which is much faster in time, of course, than what, you know, the why, what happens in the wild. We've got, we've got a labradoodle. And the reason I asked is I thought he was counterfeit because he looks like an English wolfhound. He is counterfeit. But he is allergic to himself. They're not supposed, they're supposed to be hypoallergenic. He's got, he's got webbed feet though. And that's... So, well, he's he sure got, got Labrador in him for sure. 100% mutt is what that dog is. 100% mutt. Smartest that. dog we've ever had in our life around here, though. No. No, yes. he's not. Uh, hey, you, could, you can send it to, uh, man, there, there's so many. Uh, the dog people definitely have it all down pat, um, how to do ancestry of dogs. So you can always send it to them. I, it, swab, it, swab your dog's mouth, send it over. Even if he was a counterfeit, I love him to death. He's the best pet I ever had. He's smart as could be. But he's got web feet, and that's I told Michelle one time. I said, I think he's counterfeit. I think they sold us a counterfeit one. Whenever he's got web feet as well, and he's got black spot on his tongue. I said he's a lab. Let me tell you how smart this dog is, since he's so smart. Um, we have uh, reindeer ears for you know that kids wear at Christmas. It's got like a headband on it. They put that on him, and he thinks it's a shock collar. So that's how that's how smart this dog has become. He thinks he walks around with reindeer ears and he thinks he's going to get shocked because he's just the smartest dog ever. He, eats he human, can't distinguish between a shock collar and reindeer ears. The dog eats human scraps. He stays in the air conditioner and the heater all the time. He's a pretty damn smart dog. I think yeah, he's got it. Licked. <laughs> so, so how, what's the smallest percentage that you can pick up on? Uh, we can, we can do within, within, let within two to five percent because a standard error is always about one or two percent so two to five okay anything two to five plus um we'll be able to pick up uh we pick up and we 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 can say okay you're you've got 95 percent mallard and like five percent teal that means like great 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 grandma or grandpa was a teal so that was my, and then that hybrid just basically back crossed into mallard. That would, that's what that would tell us. Um, now that that's the other thing that this project is going to tell us, like what generation of hybrids are even out there? Like we know within mallards, there's lots of hybrids, lots of generations. That does, but but a mallard pintail does that break down in two generations and one gen, like is there just F1 hybrid like first generation hybrids and because either females think they're weird looking and don't pick them, or maybe they're infertile. We can start asking those kinds of questions with this type of data. Right. That was going to be my next question. Like if you see something that's got two to 5% in it, how many hundreds or thousands of years ago was it? It's not even hundreds or thousands. It could easily be um, like, that would be something like between seven and 15 generations. Generation time is two and a half years or so in ducks. So you're looking at like 30 years ago. Oh, shit. That's not near. That's something like that. 30, 40 years. I'm, I'm on some potentially. Now, I'm on some prehistoric data. Get you a pre. Oh well, that no. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, because what we're learning is backcrossing this as hybrids move, like breed with one particular population or species, they become, they look like that species quite rapidly. I, I, we did not expect it to deteriorate as fast as it does. Now, if hybrids breed with hybrids, that, that can definitely mess, mess the signature up. And I won't be able to tell you what kind of generation it is because you can have a hybrid with a hybrid and it's just like, it keeps going back and forth it, as far as the ancestry goes. Um, but yeah, those are the types of questions. You know, there's no other way to answer them except for getting this level and this scale of, of, of sampling. So Phil, Phil, I have a question for you related to some of what you've learned on the back crossing. So let's say someone sends in a black duck and let's say it shows up as a you know, pure black duck, but is it possible that when you look at that mitochondrial DNA, and I want you right. to talk about yeah. that, that a game farm mallard could show up in the background and explain what that would be indicating? Yeah, yeah, Mike, that was great. Um, oh, we're going to go into the weeds now. Love it. Uh, go into them. Uh, I'm here for right. it. You're not only, you're not only going to get data from, like, mom and dad in the nuclear like you're 50 percent this and 50 percent that or whatever it is but you're also gonna get the mitochondrial dna which is maternal lineage only right mom gives the same empty dna to everybody dad does not give anything to the mitochondrial dna and so what we've learned is that the nuclear signal this the mom mom plus dad can dissipate really quick as those hybrids back cross in fact it could like with black ducks and mallards a hybrid a hybrid combination takes three or four, four, four at max, four generations. So again, two and a half years, you're looking at about 10 years for that genetic signature of that hybridization event at the nuclear to disappear. Like I won't be able to find it. It just looks like a black duck if it kept backcrossing into black duck or it looked like a mallard if it kept backcrossing into mallard. But the mitochondrial DNA just stays there. So as Mike alluded to, let's say it has what I think we talked about in previous podcasts, old world A haplotype, which is a mitochondrial lineage from Eurasia. And particularly the ones that we look at are from game farm mallards, which are a breed of domestic mallard, like a Pekin duck or a, or a Rowan duck or a call duck or whatever fancy breed you, you, you like. If that exists in the background of wild black duck or wild mallard or whatever, we know that great, great, great grandma was a game farm mallard. And so we're gonna be able to tell potentially, this, this would be insanely cool. If we have the data set to then say, okay, we know that this thing is wild, we can uh, estimate at least four generations back that, it, that a game farm lineage occurred. We potentially could look at times that there were just way too many. For some reason, there were a bunch of female game farm mallards in a particular region breeding. We know this happened in the Mississippi Alluvial Valley because we keep finding almost 40% of those mallards having old world A haplotypes, despite them being wild, completely genetically wild at the nuclear part, right? So we know something happened in the past where there was just an inundation of game farm mallards into those into that breeding pool, which is the prairie pothole region or the Dakotas, 
that that eventually kind of bat those individuals back crossed and yes they have old world a but they are nuclear wild so that is additional information what that's also going to do again a pintail mallard pintail mallard hybrid let's say it's a 50 50 and the mitochondrial is is pintail we can then tell you mom was pintail dad was mallard we can definitively assign that to those first generation hybrids once we see the nuclear signature so at minimum for those birds, like if you've got that cinnamon teal blue wing, whoever's mitochondrial DNA it has, we know that must that has to be mom. So thus, dad was the other species. What's the what's the newest duck we have in the world right now? Mexican duck. That's the newest, and that's an offshoot of the mallard. <laughs> that is the yeah. So that's Anis Diazzi now. So uh, uh, as a formerly known as Anis Platerinkus Diazzi. So it was a subspecies because everybody thought they were at demise hybridization with mallards. We show that it's not. I think we talked about it with model ducks, Mexican ducks, black ducks. They are all what a, the data strongly suggests and supports are offshoots of the green head in North America. So it's like a green head monster. Then it, through glacier events, again, adaptations eventually led to evolution of the black duck, the model ducks, and the Mexican duck. So, Phil, the, so the the Mexican duck is the is the youngest phylogenetically, or are we just talking like no, no, like scientific it's, it's name? It's recently uh, renamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what what do we know phylogenetically? Phylogenetically, the most recent duck. Oh, that's a good question. I I all of these guys have so. So the ancestor to all ducks is one of the oldest lineages in, in, uh, in the bird world to dinosaurs, right? They were 75 million years ago. That was when the duck and Seriformes lineage started. So they walked with dinosaurs for a while. They didn't die, but they also were this ancestor for a very long time. About all of the lineages we know today, both in diving ducks, sea ducks, and, and, and dabbling ducks, evolved in the last 10 million. So there was like this mallard thing this pintail thing this like you know diving duck kind of thing and then all the contemporary all the kind of species within those groups all the different types of pintail the different types of mallards evolved in the last million years million to two for the mallard the youngest ones would be the mexican duck black duck and and model duck and our time points almost estimate almost uh, like simultaneous split from the mallard, which is within the last half million, 300,000 to 500,000 years ago, is when those things came, started to come to be. Uh, and it times really well with glacier events, basically pushing mallard populations down. Those mallard populations start to evolve in these different locations, boreal forests in the east, uh, deserts in the southwest, uh, the wetland complexes of Florida and West Gulf Coast region eventually had different pressures on those mallards. Those mallards lost their green heads. And then eventually we have what we consider the Mexican duck, the model duck, and the black duck. Now, there might be some even younger species. Our estimate for the Hawaiian duck, which is also part of the, of the mallard group, is estimated to be only like 5,000 years old. We don't have very good estimates on it. We have some ancient DNA from 500-year-old subfossils that we got out of Hawaii, um, and those were Hawaiian ducks. So we know Hawaiian ducks existed in at least 500 years ago and were eaten by Polynesians. 
Um, but as far as as being con conservatively, I don't know, in fact, the Hawaiian duck, but I would say the rest of the species about the last half million years within the complex, right? Within the pintail complex, within the teal complex, within all of these, you know, diving duck complex, so forth. I got a migration question for you. We are, we are seeing now Mexican tree ducks. We used to know, or whistling tree ducks. Black, we have eight of them here. Whistling tree ducks. Whistling. Fulvus and black Fulvus, bellied. yes. Fulvus. Black bellied. We used to not have them, but they are here now. And they're a lot yep. of places. And they, they kind of remind me of the white-winged dove. 20 years ago, we didn't have very many white-winged doves in North Texas. Now we have thousands and thousands of them. And I'm noticing... Yeah, they're, they're the majority of my bag these days. Is white wings. Yeah, it's that way here, too. And we used to not have... It, when I first got in the hunting business, guys would dove hunt here, and then they would all go to South Texas to go shoot white wings, like September 15th or so when it would open around San Antonio. Now we're seeing the, the, the tree ducks, whatever the hell they're called, black belly tree ducks. Those are getting to be more and more, I don't even know the word, we're just seeing more and more of them. What, what, what's causing this? I'm pretty sure we talked about this in the last podcast. But, but, uh, but we, um, yeah, I mean, it's basically uh, changing Earth's ecology. <laughs> I don't know how you want me to say it. But the changing uh, ecology of the of planet Earth is allowing these things, these things kind of migrated northward, had a northward rain shift, I guess you could say. And they're they're doing well, right? Again, things that do well have lots of babies and they are having lots of babies and those babies are doing well. And and especially using the um, the all the irrigation that is, I think one of the hypotheses is is also that a lot of the irrigation corn feeders, deer feeders that are out there, they are hammering them. And that is a huge source of new protein on top of it. They're also using all the wood duck boxes that are out there. So that was a bright, you know, Hey, there's all these wood duck boxes. They're going to start using them. So I think there is just a, a sort of perfect situation for them. Uh, when they got in, they were able to expand. I mean, heck they're there. I think there's a breeding pair in Ohio. I don't. I I think there's breeding pairs. I feel like I heard one in Michigan, but I don't know. I know that uh, a buddy of mine sent me a picture of his deer lease the other day, and there was about eighty of them at his feeder. Yeah, he goes. He goes. Yeah, when those I... when those feeders go off, I was uh, I was doing some collecting. When those feeders go off, it's not just pigs that come in. Those those uh, black bellies, those whistling ducks just swarm in, and I watched it, and I was like, oh, they know what that is. Yeah, I, t I told him, he goes, can I shoot him? I said, you can't shoot him over them corn feeders. You got to wait till deer uh, duck season gets here. <laughs> yep. But and then you can't shoot them over. You can't shoot them over corn, but right. you got to have deer duck season and you can't be shooting them over corn feeders. My question is, will they stay here year round or do they migrate? Are they pretty much localized? No, they're, they're localized. They, they look, they lo as far as I understand, Mike, you can, you can talk to it if you know more, but they basically localize a place, expand on it, and then birds then move forward you know move further areas where they can have less competition again it's all about lessening competition so those f initial ones had no competition they had all the corn they wanted and all the all the stock tanks they wanted and and then eventually that population grew to whatever number and then individuals left to to greener pastures where they don't have to compete and that's the expansion yeah, and, and it, it depends a little bit on where they are. Like there's a population of about 200, 250 breeding pairs here around Memphis. Once the uh, cold weather hits, those birds leave. We don't know where they go. Uh, we actually, there's some some work that's been done here in this little local population, banded birds, 
uh, over the years. Very, very few band recoveries from all those that have been put out. They're using nest boxes. Some of them even nest on the ground. They're they're a very adaptable bird. They're proving to be, at least in terms of some of where they're nesting. The one thing they are not very good at, though, is tolerating cold temperatures. They're not very well insulated. So in these northern latitudes where you're starting to find them, where they're expanding, they will not stick around during that fall and winter period. They get out of there. But there's still pretty big unknown about where they go, which is just yeah. fascinating um, to, to, to think that there's a researcher that was here studying that population, banding these birds. And, you know, they go somewhere, you know, they they cross paths with hunt with hunters every now and then. But they have I don't know where they're going. Maybe this could be a group that's going back to Mexico. We just don't know right now. We yeah. have a group here that we hunted teal hunted on. And they did you have them come to the decoys? Andy? I had one come to the decoys. But the other ones were Let me tell you, I was with some outlaws that day, and it was everything I could do to keep the... They had some itchy trigger fingers, because every one of them was like, (laughs) I've never even had an opportunity at shooting one of these. So, listen, guys. But they had babies that were... Shoot what you can afford. Then there was a nesting pair there that had a bunch of babies that were really small, couldn't even fly yet. So... Yeah, and so that's another another perfect example of what we're seeing and some of what Phil's talking about in terms of adaptation. There are have been multiple reports here recently of as as in early September finding black-bellied whistling ducks on the nest with active nest. And you kind of do the math if you assume that they're two weeks those nests those eggs were two weeks old at that time. Give them another two weeks to hatch, and so then you're looking at late September. It's going to take 45 days at least before those birds can attain flight. That's not that's those ducklings are unlikely to survive. So if that late nesting had sort of a genetically controlled component, that gene isn't going to get passed on just yet. Now, if we get increasingly milder fall and winter periods and allows those birds to, uh, those ducklings to survive, then you start to see a change in that gene frequency that's controlling that late nesting. And then you get what Phil's talking about, that adaptation. So it's really cool to be able to watch a species change its behavior and do different things so quickly in modern day where we have the ability to study that species. Is there any cause for concern about what these uh, ducks are going to do to wood duck, to the wood duck population? Because Phil, you alluded to the fact that they are taking up uh, wood duck boxes. Is there anything that we're worried about? Like, Hey, this might put a a hurting on our wood duck population. I mean, I have no idea. I don't study them. I I mean, what, based on what Mike just said, I mean, if they, are offset on when they use those boxes Mm -hmm. then no right Right. then in fact it's beneficial for both of them uh it's working for both of them uh but yeah mike go go ahead yeah so it's gonna exactly as you said it's going to depend on where that is there is research going on related to that question i can tell you from what i've heard from the researcher here uh, up in the memphis area as dr jared henson who actually is now working for ducks unlimited he left his university position is now working with us but what he said is that because of what I mentioned about the birds, the black-bellied whistling ducks here migrate out during the fall. They don't come back until the spring. And because they're not as cold tolerant even as wood ducks, they arrive and start breeding after the wood ducks in this area have already started breeding. But, I mean, so from for this area, there is not as much competition right now for those, those uh, nest boxes between those two species. But... That may not necessarily be the case if you go south into uh, into coastal Louisiana, some of those areas where 
the the temperature pressures aren't as great and maybe and we do see black belly whistling ducks able to 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 stay year round. I don't know what Dr. Kevin Ringelman and his students at LSU are finding with regard to the overlap of, of the timing of nest box use between those two species, but I know they're studying it. Uh, so it's an active area of research, I guess is what we can say. Yeah. This is all fascinating because has there ever been this there this is the first project where like we're going to get where we're actively getting hunters in to send us your ducks. Absolutely. So yeah. I mean yeah, it's it's the answers could scale. come fat. Right. Yeah, that's what I that's what I was trying to say. At scale like this, I mean, yeah, no, there's, there's never been a study like this or an attempt at a study like this. So uh it all just depends on participation and interest, you know. Hopefully uh people listen to this podcast and other podcasts and find the information and be like, man, this is cool. This would be an awesome Christmas gift or whatever. Um, and they're, they're, they're game to put, you know, put a little bit of effort, cut off a tongue, put it in the vial, keep it until the end of hunting season or when they fill those things up and start sending us back. And this first year I was also going to note, and I think Mike was going to note it as well, is that we are focusing on mallards black ducks, Mexican ducks, and model ducks in particular. But honestly, if you've got an in, a duck of interest, a hybrid or other, feel free to send that in as well. But we are particularly interested in getting folks putting in mallards in, more, more specifically uh, because of the question and trying to get ahead of understanding this whole game farm mallard hybridization thing, uh, looking at, 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 a, at finer and finer scales to understand where this is a real problem, where uh, potential management actions can help alleviate those problems. It's amazing to me that we're living in a time right now that we're seeing, well, we're seeing the, the, the tree ducks come up and we're also on the West coast. People are shooting a lot more Eurasian widgeon than ever before. Isn't that correct? I've, I, uh, they've been there since I was there, but I've heard that the reports are higher and higher. I mean, I've never, I never had one swing through my, my decoys when I was in California, unfortunately, but I saw him when we were banding, uh, Brian, Brian Huber could probably attest to that, that, that there's more that he's probably banding more of them. I'm pretty sure he is. Yeah. I got a, we got, I got a friend of mine that takes a lot of pictures around the Tacoma Seattle area and he gets, mm -hmm. he gets pictures of them all the time now. And that was something oh, that's awesome. that was something 20, 10, 10 years ago. That wasn't, that was very rare. And you're, yeah. and you're hearing of more people shooting them and, and they're getting them banded and stuff. And, the same with the tree ducks. We didn't have those a long time ago, but like I said, I remember we didn't have white wings. I remember when we didn't have the Eurasian dove, and that seems to me like the, yep. the tree ducks is they. I've always heard that the the Eurasian dove move eight miles every year. I don't know how true that is, but it all they all started in Ireland in Florida, and they've kind of grown all over. I guess you have them all over El Paso, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. But, they're, but they're, they're here. But, Thankfully, they don't count against the bag. But but did you have them there 15 years ago? I wasn't here. I, I no, they weren't here. Yeah, and, no, and, I, I looked at records, and they're everywhere now. <laughs> yeah, they are. And and no, for sure. I mean, it, what this attests to is there the changing climates, changing pressures around the world, changes distributions. On top of it, we move things around ourselves all the time, and look at pigs, in particular, um, and some things adapt and, and quickly you know they they don't have the pressures that were limiting their populations where they're from and then they get to a place where there's no competition and that's how you have you have species invasive species 
that that are so prolific because they don't have the diseases or any of the competitors that they had from wherever they came from, right? Yeah. This is uh, uh, the known fact of, of invasive species. Um, and so, you know, the life finds a way. Why are the yeah. speckle belly you know, numbers? One of the things- Go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. Well, one of the things I was just going to add to that is is I kind of like to tell people when we talk about changes in winter distributions of birds or changes in migration, for the most part, that process, that biological process of migration hasn't changed. What has changed is what Phil talked about, is the landscapes and the environmental conditions that those birds are interacting with. And that's what they're responding to, certainly over the shorter term. Now, if you want to talk longer term, you can cause some changes, as Phil has talked about, in the, in the ecology of the species. But over the short term, primarily what we're seeing are responses of those those fundamental biological processes to changes in the in the landscapes and the distribution and abundance of wetlands uh, in in hunting pressure in winter temperatures all those things that's what the birds are responding to is uh, I mean I don't understand what what anybody wouldn't why people would not want to sign up for this I mean there's no negative outcome for the hunter is there no, we see. No, I mean, no. you know, and that's what, it is interesting <laughs> that you say that because I, I try being a hunter myself, being a hunter for uh, forty plus years, I do. I, I think about that. It's like, what what's the hurdle? What would prevent someone from being involved? And I know some hunters are, are very skeptical, and 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 that's I, I get it. But we're trying to make this as easy as possible. We're very clear about um, about the information that we're asking for. Uh, you're not going to get spammed with with Ducks Unlimited emails or anything of that nature. Uh, we're wanting hunter participation. We're wanting waterfowl hunters to to reassert themselves, maintain their status as some of the most impactful, engaged citizen scientists on the planet here in North America. Um, we've they have been they have held that title for decades through their contribution to band recoveries, band reporting harvest surveys and things of that nature. But we are now at a time of, of new technologies, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, uh, photo recognition, what's it called? Uh, like the photo recognition um, software that you see used in a lot of other birding applications. And I think the time is right for waterfowl and waterfowl hunters, waterfowl managers and waterfowl hunters to, to find our place in that new area of technology-driven citizen science. It's not going to change the way that we contribute to band recovery, to harvest data, although there's some people messing around and thinking about ways that we can improve um, that, that the collection of that harvest data, make it more technologically friendly. But, but this is a great opportunity for waterfowl hunters and the waterfowl management community to, to get back to the top of that list uh, or, or stay at the top of that list, I guess, is what I should say in terms of the contributions to the management of these of these resources. Yeah, yeah I would I, I would just quickly add. I mean, adding the genetic component is like a is is a layer, just like banding, weather severity, any of those types of data inputs that people are using to make management decisions. But in this case, what gen, what these what the genetic data is going to provide is a better foundation, right? So we can start partitioning populations or species into these different genetic groups and understand why they're different, right? Genetics is different because there's differences in survival and fecundity and all these metrics. Otherwise, they'd look the same. Mm -hmm. If their genetics is different, that means different individuals are breeding differently. And thus, we can start asking the question, 
Why are they breeding differently? Because they migrate differently. They use different habitats. Some, some are becoming more urbanized than others. Those are kinds of questions that we can get at these kinds of landscape and time interval questions, right? If we do this for hopefully the next decade, the, the, the data set that could be amassed would be, um, it's, it doesn't exist. It, it doesn't exist for any other species. Yeah, I'm looking at y'all. I'm looking at the website right now, duckdna.com, and uh, you hit apply today, and it's it's first name, last name, email address, and state you hunt most often, and you hit submit. That's it. I mean, Do I don't. It. And it's funny too because waterfowlers are like the first to bitch about anything, you know, like uh, <laughs> oh the duck population isn't what Ducks Unlimited says it was or anything. It's like well, like now you have an opportunity to be an active participant in something that could move the, the sport forward and give us a better understanding of what happened hundred years ago. Also, or also yeah. what you're going to be able to do is put a picture on one of those social medias and be like, what do you guys think it is? And then everybody <laughs> yeah. says whatever their opinion is and be like, actually <laughs> duck DNA said that yeah. you're wrong. Yeah. And Andy, Andy, <laughs> Andy, one of the other things that I would say to your point, Phil is a scientist. I am a trained scientist. Yes, I work for Ducks Unlimited right now uh, and have for 18 years, but we have scientists on staff and it is my one of my primary responsibilities is to help represent scientific information to this organization. And I've made it clear from the start when we entered into this part uh, this partnership with UTEP is that our number one goal is collecting reliable scientific information to answer the questions that Phil and other waterfowl researchers are asking. Uh, there, there are no gimmicks here. Uh, yes, we want to position Ducks Unlimited to be a, a, a key partner in this. Yes, we're interested in Ducks Unlimited branding, but that's all secondary, legitimate secondary to the fundamental idea of, of engaging waterfowl hunters in collecting scientific information and contributing to some really, truly discovery-based research. It's, it's pretty cool uh, to, to be at this point. Uh, there was a couple other things I was going to say about the website. Uh, right now, if you go to it, uh, right, right now there, there's not a whole lot of other information there. There will be pretty soon where we you can learn more about the project, why we're interested in this. You can learn more about Phil and his lab and some of the work that they've done. Uh, and there's going to be a few other pages added uh, through time. There will be some videos and photos and things of that nature. But the important, the priority right now was to get that live get it where people can apply and and just keep checking back duckdna.com and uh, yeah i hope people find it as fascinating and as exciting as phil and i obviously do well and uh, i mean you know like th this could go this could blow up i mean you know th there could be pages dedicated to just you know the the dna results of what y'all find this year I mean, this is just kind of the ground floor of this whole thing. Like, there's no telling what this is going to be in another year. No, I absolutely. So. I, I sure, and I sure hope so. But yeah, we're <laughs> hoping to also, uh, I, you know, Mike and I have been bouncing ideas and uh, at least have a yeah. map and we can start showcasing like where samples are coming from. But then on top of it, we can have other maps, at least for now, you know, about mallards and being like, you can look at ancestry of the mallard across North America. Hopefully we have the sample sizes, but across, you know, during hunting season and hopefully eventually maybe, you know, year two, year three, we can do it in real time where you're like, Ooh, there, for some reason, the hybrids are, are, are showing up over here and they're moving earlier, or maybe they just never move. And everybody in this location just keeps shooting hybrids. But then the, and then there's like this, you know, 
blast of pure wild mallards and then they're gone because they're actually migrating. You know, these are the types of phenomenon that we can start looking at at a, at a detail that would be, again, impossible. How many subspecies of mallards are there, you think? Different. Well, the species. How many different there's, there's, strands? There's there's a, there's there's fourteen species of mallard-like okay. ducks. If you're talking about the greenhead, there's one species. It's a mallard, and all all these other things, again, is just wolf dog system. Uh, there's one mallard, wild mallard species, and there are dozens of of breeds that people have made. I, I will say those are made because they're people. What are the use artif use artificial selection to push the genetics to things? They how many? Like. Just what like do you think the percentages are of when you shoot a mallard that is a purebred wild mallard? Where Texas? Where I'm at, West Texas. You know, I don't have good data on Texas. Kansas. That's the that's the other problem. Uh, so yeah, so the data that I have, I think I've got like only fifteen or twenty birds, and uh, if I and this is totally off the top of my head because my numbers are are are, are fine tuned for east of the Mississippi River, um, but I'm pretty sure it's like eighty to ninety percent wild. Now we're picking up game farm mallards in places we didn't expect, and talking with some of the colleagues in Texas Parks and Wildlife. Now I'm learning that there are some folks releasing and that's probably where they're coming from. But again, if, if we get participation at the scales that we hope to, we can ask those questions. Are those birds coming from somewhere else? Are they from the location, from Tex people from Texas releasing them and make those birds are the ones making that, you know, into the bag limits of, of, of people that are on public land or private land? Um, you know, I don't know. We're going to find, hopefully we'll find out so soon. 80 to 90% of the birds we shoot in the United States, most of them are going to be wild mallards. No. What about, what about upstate anymore. New York? What are you looking at? 50, 50? Yeah, it's almost 50, 50 during hunting season and during banding season, it drops down to about 30% wild, 70% wow. game farm, game farm feral. That's what our summer banding programs are banding. Mostly uh, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, New Jersey, it's almost 0% Whoa. during the summer. And it upticks to, on average, 2%. Yeah, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the bag limit is during hunting season. It would be wild, but those are birds. we've, And we have isotopic signatures now that suggest those are birds coming out of Canada during. So there's a mixing that's occurring during uh, hunting season. But during the summer, when those Canadian birds are in the north and our birds are properly not very well uh, organized in breeding propensity in the in the south, in uh, the U.S. state, in the U.S. side of things, it's almost zero percent in in a lot of the eastern northeastern states. Well, let's I'll, clarify I'll, this I'll, for for people that don't understand, and there's going to be a few of them because we have some really dumb listeners, but <laughs> most of them, but. Two dumb you're, hosts, too. You're still, yeah, two really dumb, at least one <laughs> dumb host. Andy, at least, is really educated. The birds you're shooting are wild birds. They're just not wild. Correct. It's, a, it's like shoot, it's shooting a, a pig in North America, yeah. right? It's shooting a pig in North America versus a pig in, in Germany. Germany's wild. We're feral. Yep. But That's what, that, so this is more of, and again, to make sure everybody understands, 
a feral individual is something of domestic origin that is now in the wild ecology. It's not in the cage, it's not in the farm, it's not where you thought where you thought it was supposed to be. It's outside of that area. So, th so that would be feral. And I would have to consider anything that is 100% game farm outside of the game farm preserve that it was released would be feral because I have no idea what gen how long it's been actually living out there, right? Um, and so many places, and obviously in the summertime, those are definitely feral because that means they survived the hunting season, mm -hmm. right? And are now attempting to breed uh, on the landscape not in a cage so those are feral and feral wild hybrids that are being banded in a lot of the northeastern states do you i'm gonna just kind of swing the changes up completely a little bit the egyptian goose starting to see more and more pictures of egyptian geese places we killed we killed we had a flock of 25 of them here one year and we killed a few of them and then the next year we'd shoot one or two here or there we don't have no golf courses out here that was a big i i, I personally saw the flock it was a big flock of them and I'm assuming it come from a game farm or escape from a country club somewhere. But those are getting to be more and more. Do you see 20, 30 years down the road a big viable flock of those that people are hunting everywhere? Man, you just pivoted. I know. Uh, sure. <laughs> I mean, why not? I mean, it just all depends. You know, if those geese are getting the nutritional value and have uh, breeding, breeding locales for them to be viable, absolutely. If they don't, they'll go extinct. I mean, that's just, that's just how, that's just how nature works. Right. Um, now with increasing urban sprawl, sure. I mean, it's the same reason why we have so many resident Canada geese. These geese don't have to migrate. You've got water and feed year round in places that normally would never have had it. And you, it, it, they're big bodied individuals. They don't have to leave, right. They can maintain, maintain within an area, even if it's cold, but if it's only cold for two weeks, that's not enough for them to push. At least that that's what we, are seeing. So if these Egyptian geese, which you're right, 99% likelihood that somebody released them and they just took just like pigs. Um, it just all depends if they've, if they've got what they need, they'll keep breeding. I mean, that's what, that's what nature is all about making babies. You know, I've always said us hunters are better than those Northeast guys. They're shooting pin ducks. I'll, I'll, you know, that's what it is. That's, that's the only reason they're shooting ducks up there. Easy ducks to shoot. You get to say that. We're going to go hunting. Up, <laughs> we're going hunting up there in three weeks. Ah, we're shooting geese though. They're they're hundred percent wild. <laughs> yeah. I wish we shot more ducks. Like I want to enter into this, but we we don't shoot enough ducks for me to even like take up y'all's time. No, enter everybody. Enter. Yeah. Put your Absolutely. name in the hat. What if you shoot five ducks in a day? Five ducks in the season. You get you get to put it in, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That... And, and again, if. It, enter even if you, you know what in the end if you enter and you you were saving them for some special hybrid or something it is what it is you know that's we right. appreciate it enter you do what you can and that's all we ask um because because here's the thing you shoot a cool hybrid and you don't have it not much you can do well i guess you can contact me and i'm calling i you could be that. like yes yeah, okay yeah but but in all honesty you have the kit and it happens you can do it. You don't have the kit and you, it, and you just so happen to have that hell of a day and shoot that crazy bird. You know, what else can we, do? not much you can do about it. We shoot one jacked yeah. up bird every year. Every, I'm sorry. Every single year we shoot a jacked up bird of some sort. Could be a cross I goose. See that, that, yeah. I want to see that bird's tongue in the vial then. What were you going to say, yep. Mike? 
Well, I was just going to say to, you know, if you, if you, if you're selected and if you go out, uh, let's say you, you're, you, you go hunting one day, you kill one of the, kill one bird, but then you're, you don't think you're going to go hunting for another month. You can put that one bird that the tissue of that one bird in the freezer. You don't have to send it in right now, put it in the freezer and then wait, you know, whatever, three, four weeks till you go hunting again. And, um, you don't have to kill all five birds and sample all five birds at one time. Matter of fact, it might even be better if you spread it out across the, the hunting season, different locations. Um, so yeah, just no pressure. And like Phil said, if it doesn't work out for you this year, you're selected and you just don't have opportunities to hunt or you don't have opportunities to harvest any ducks, that's okay. Uh, it is what it is. We're not under any illusions that this is going to work out perfectly. Um, so yeah, just everyone encourage everyone to apply and, and try to be part of this. Um, I had another, Oh, how long will these samples stay viable for? Like say you shoot a duck and you know, that's the only one that you sampled this year. Uh, uh, if you put it, if you put it in the freezer, uh, years, oh, it will, it will be, uh, it, it'll be good for a while. Yeah. Though. Yeah. No, my, our, they'll be in my freezer for as long as I'm here. Um, yeah. The, now we put in a cryo freezer that's minus 80 that like basically stops any sort of, uh, DNA degradation. Um, but, but, uh, the buffer that we're going to be sending you is really good. It, it, it stops that, you know, DNA degradation. Um, it gives you time to get it into the freezer. And, and as Mike alluded to, you know what, if you only got one, you only got three, just keep them in the freezer until, until either the end of the season or until you fill them up. And, and honestly, if you don't fill them up, I don't know, maybe we, oh, we haven't really talked about it, but like, my guess is keep the kit and maybe next year you do it. Uh, that's something. Yeah that I just thought of and yeah. we haven't actually discussed. So this is how Western or, it is right now. Yeah. Or share, or share <laughs> those vials. If you don't think you're going to yeah. be able to use all those vials, share them with your friends. The only thing that you would have to do in that case is make sure your friend is able to provide you with a few key pieces of information. Cause the one thing yeah. I don't know that we have said is like, so you, you collect the tissue, put it in the vial. Each of these vials is going to have a unique number, uh, alphanumeric code on it. You will then go to your personalized duck DNA account. You only get a personalized duck DNA account if you're one of the 300 people selected to participate. But then for each of those tissue samples that you collect, you go to that account, you enter the, the specific vial number, and then there's going to be two or three or four questions that we ask you. So that's the only thing you need to coordinate with a friend that you're sharing those vials with is making sure you get that information back from the tissue, from the ducks that they, that they harvested and, and sampled. So... I mean, yeah. it is legitimately hunters collecting and providing scientific data. Yeah, and if you if you're if you're a club and you get a, one or two of these kits, anybody can put it in. But as Mike alluded to, just make sure you got the data and and information that we'll need to do some of the cool analyses we're hoping to do. Um, I was also going to say, if you do not get picked by in the first hundred fifty uh, uh, person draw. Uh, don't don't despair because your name be continue to be in it for the secondary draw. So hopefully, and, and we're 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 considering how we're going to parse these draws out as far as where hunting seasons start and stop. Uh, something that we're considering now. But but again, your name will can will basically be rolled over into that secondary draw, uh, and it, it's essentially like a western draw if you've ever done yeah. that. Yeah. Secondary draw is secondary draw is going to be in early December. First draw, mid-October. Second draw, early December. I'm just going to start clipping duck tongues. Just, you know, I'm just going to assume that I get drawn <laughs> and uh, 
I'm just going to start clipping them and, and putting them in freezer bags. What I'm going to do. I'm just going to assume yeah. it. It is pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting. I did this last year and I was surprised at, at, and it, it's like there's some bony structures in the tongue. It's not like it's not completely soft tissue. So it, uh, yeah, it takes a little bit of force to cut through there. So are you going to learn something about the anatomy of the, of these birds that a lot of people previously previously didn't know it was pretty cool i was also gonna say uh when you're if you've got a bunch of if you got a set of ducks you're doing from a single day or even the cross day just make sure you clip off if you're using a big toe nail clipper your favorite knife just make sure you wipe that off with the wipes that we provide so that way we reduce as much cross contamination as possible don't want cutting the deer meat up and then doing that at the same <laughs> it's time. Gonna, it's yeah, because right. then I'll be it's like, right. what is this deer in this yeah. DNA? It's got, it's got a warthog yeah. in it somehow. <laughs> Mallard white tail cross. <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? What uh, are are you are you specifically wanting? Uh, do you want any hens in this, or are you wanting all drakes, or does it matter? Just send us your duck. Send us your duck, in my opinion. Yeah, especially in particular, actually, as you mentioned it, if you've got a weird looking hen. This is a question that we've always had. Like, are are the fact that we see more male hybrids just because females are uh, female hybrids don't exist for a variety of genetic reasons, or is it because um, because we always just see it's easier to see a male hybrid, right? So if you got a female that kind of looks funky, man, that that'd be great. You know, that's something that we hope to do. It's kind of like the blonde mallard. You always see blonde mallard hens. You very seldom see a blonde mallard drake. Yeah. Yep. So clip that tongue, send it in. So I, I've Let's not heard that, out. that more hybrids are, are skew male, but that would make sense because they're easier to spot. That's that. That's the, that's the, then the biggest question is like all hens are more, more or less cryptic. Right. So when you combine a cryptic with a cryptic kind of looks cryptic, but potentially there might be some colorations that are off or whatever it might be that might be, make you go like, Oh, this is a weird looking hen. And that, and, but we just have never, we don't have the data set to answer the question whether it's some sort of genetic issue that there's just more males, or is it just because we see the males and it's like, oh, look at that, we, look at that cool looking bird. Um, again, this study, this, this participation at this scale, because it's hard to get hybrids, right? Not in any one given year, a lot of us hunters get a lot of hybrids, but any one given gener- like lifetime, you don't get very many. Right. So by combining our all of our efforts, we could get data sets that would take lifetimes to to achieve. And the female, a lot of the old females quit producing estrogen and they take on a green head. Isn't that correct? That is correct. I've got one. Yeah, we just published published a paper just like that. Uh, Just uh, exactly that. She was missing her ovaries and she she looked like we genetically vetted. It was a wild female mallard. She, and but like outside of the bill look like a drake mallard we have one mounted in there that's what yeah. that's what she is she's a female that's in the by the serving line that's it that looks i'm like, not gonna believe shit until that's what y'all are gonna do y'all are gonna crush a lot of dreams doing this because you're gonna have the guy that you know can identify everything he's gonna send that tongue and you're gonna be like no it's not that at all <laughs> i've got it we've you got it so yeah, no, off no i'm gonna i'm i'm gonna because i watch some of the threads and then they're like oh that's a pintail widgeon or widgeon this and i'm like that's a farm dog <laughs> um, <laughs> we've got and you know what yeah. i i'm gonna be happy to send those results in well we have yeah. a female dreams we had one that i used to think was a 
cross-dresser <clears throat> transvestite duck is what I thought it was. But what it, And I found out later what it was. It was just a female that quit producing estrogen, and she got a green head because her body mm-hmm. looks like a mallard, fe- a mallard hen, and then she's got a green head, and she was taking on the beak color a little bit, and that's what it was just an estrogen deal. And yeah, I, that's what we're that that's exactly what we're finding that it that uh these older females or if something happens to uh her um ovaries they that that limits that estrogen production. It doesn't shut off the green head genes and so that's why all of a sudden she starts showing them. And that's the same exact thing of why we see green in the head and all these other things in some of the um juvenile males. So first year breeding plumage males of model ducks, mexican ducks, and black ducks, they'll have those traits, those male mallard, male mallard traits. And we think it's, again, a testosterone, estrogen kind of sign- signature that turns on and off. And those first, first year males like can't control their testosterone and just so happen to uh, uh, express some of the mallard genes that are still present in them. Then let me ask you this, and uh, this this might be a uh, a woman question, one where they ask and there's no answer possible. Um, Jeff's my mom does that a lot to Jeff. Just ask a question Every day. and there's no answer. Um, is it possible? Is it possible that all female ducks go through like a menopause, and given if they could survive long enough, that they would all kind of quit producing estrogen and take on male characteristics? That's what we're, that's what we think can happen we do not have the data to support it outside of mallards because they're kind of well like watched and studied would a female pintail start looking like a male pintail my bet would be yes but again you would have to hopefully some folks can shoot some of those we can bet that they are female oh that's the other thing you can send it to me and we are going to vet that they're that what you sent to me and even though you told me it's a male, that it's actually a male or a female. Um, I'm, I'm excited for the female hen mallards that turn out to be black ducks um, or model <laughs> ducks that come in. But we're, that's part of it with the genetics. We can easily tell exactly what they are. Can't hide from that. Um, and so we're going to be able to start, hopefully, again, people send in, be like, this kind of looks like a female mall- male, pintail, female male looking teal or whatever it might be. And we can start out, we can have more definitive answers of those types of ducks and be like, they are genetically female. Uh, why they are not a hybrid must, you know, we, you know, those types of patterns would start telling us, yes, indeed. Like there must be something about the estrogen testosterone situation that, that might explain this. You know, it's, um, it's funny, if you look on the forums on Facebook and stuff, somebody will shoot a duck and say, what is that? And all the people, well, you shouldn't shoot shit if you don't know what it is. Well, you know what? You're not going to shoot a trophy duck if you don't keep Nobody's ever going to say, oh, that's a hybrid. <laughs> don't shoot it. You don't know what it is. Shoot it. You know, there's no closed season on anything in the United States. You can shoot one of them. If it's during hunting season, you can kill at least one. <laughs> huh? I can't just fucking shoot. Just just shoot, shoot one of them, you know? Just make sure it's a duck. Yeah, yeah, if it's yeah, a yeah. duck, you can... Yeah. There, there's, yeah, there you go. If you're duck hunting, you can kill one of at least everything out there. Right. So shoot the damn thing and then figure out what it is. These people always judge. They do the same damn thing. Well, in tech, like, we can shoot 30 minutes before dark. Like, I, I can tell it's a duck coming in. Or 30 minutes before uh, sunrise. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, before dark. Yeah, no, no, not before dark. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we can shoot 30 minutes before sunrise. So like I can tell it's a duck coming in. So shoot it. 
we're shooting and asking later. Yep. We'll figure out what the hell it is later on. Yeah. You know? If it's canvas back, then we'll count we'll it. Some tongue in. Don't yeah. shoot don't shoot a swan and think, Oh, I thought that was a snow goose. Make sure it is what you're supposed to be the species. But <laughs> Yeah, that that's a that's a bad one. Yeah. I thought it was a teal. <laughs> I knew um, no boy that did that one time. Shot a swan? Yeah. Oh, man. Had that some bitch plucked. Sucker looked like a damn butterball turkey. That's a big old snow goose, yeah. There's, there's going to be people that think they have hybrids. That they're going to throw them out of the freezer when the results come back. And like, Son of a bitch. I was going to send this to the taxidermist, and it's just a mallard hen. Yeah. That's all it is. <laughs> Crushing dreams. I'm so excited about Crushing. this. I, I really am. Providing information. I, I, I really yeah. am. Well, I am so excited about this. I'm excited to see what this is going to lead to uh, in the future and some of the answers that we're going to get. Um Another uh, another woman question. What do you think the most uh, misidentified duck is? I'm saying gadwall. Ooh. Hmm. There's an answer to that somewhere in the literature. Um, my, 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 my former supervisor, Barry Wilson, down in uh, Louisiana, did his master's research on that, where he took waterfowl study scans, you know, sort of the simplified taxidermy mounts, to um, to ch hunter check stations back in the day, uh, and and to test hunters' identification skills. I forget what it, I want to say redhead or ringneck duck, like a hen. Oh. Definitely on the hen side of things, you're, the the divers, hen divers, are going to be misidentified quite often. Um, I want to say ringneck or, or hen redhead, something like that might be. Up That's what there. I was going to think it was because my game warden used to, I had an old, old game warden when we first got in business out here, and he'd bring ducks by to me all the time. Can you identify this? <laughs> and there's always some scup, ringneck, something like that that was, you know, yeah. that you couldn't tell more than anything else. I've not had a whole lot of experience yeah. with divers. So, like, I, we get gadwalls and stuff like that, and that usually throws just the casual hunter for a loop a lot of times, especially like a hen. Hen mallard. Hen mallard. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. When they say, when, you, no, you're right. Thinking about it, a lot of folks that shoot a gadwell, male or female, they're like, I think it's a head mallard. I've heard it's that got a white, lot. White bars um, on it. It's not a get. It's not a mallard. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Brewer's duck. No speculum. Brewer's mm -hmm. duck. Ooh, that'd be great to get. Start getting people start shooting. If if, if people still people get them. Clip the tongue. Those would be great I've to got, get because that—that's always a, a question in my mind. If brewer ducks end at that first generation, or there's back crossing between mallards and and uh, and gadwall. On top of it, whether those hybrids. Another question. You know, we see so many mallard X something hybrids. My question these days, now knowing what I know about game farm mallards, is whether those are all wild or game farm hybrids that are that that are causing that. You know, game farm mallards have a higher propensity to breed, interbreed. Um, that's what they're that's what they're made to do, just breed. Um, and so, it, it would be an interesting question of whether increased hybrids is due to those things being on the landscape. Well, there's yeah. some bird farms Phil, out that are farming them. Oh, I know. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Uh, Phil, one of the things that you just said that reminded me, or I guess reminded me, it came to mind for the first time, we're probably going to get a fair number of people that aren't selected. This like, as you have had happen throughout past years, weren't selected to participate in this, but shoot a hybrid and are going to want to know if we can run an analysis on their sample. That's something we haven't really figured out yet. I think it's going to depend on the demand, uh, how many of those type of requests. One of the things that I will say, if you go to that website and you go down to the bottom, I think it says, contact us. It will uh, would take you to our the the email that we've set up for this duckdna at ducks.org. 
so that would be the way to get in touch with the group. That's um, well, it'd be it'd be me and a couple of other people that would receive that email, and we just have to figure out. Uh, whether we're able to do that given capacity and financial resources, because this costs money to do this. Uh, we're the reason it's free to hunters participate right now is because of the generosity of some donors that we're engaging and are helping us out with this. So, uh, yeah, that's there. There are ways that to get in touch with us, and that's another one of those items that we're just gonna have to figure out as we go through this. Yeah, this year's a big learning lesson for us, you know, uh, once we get through this year and understand demand and understand some of the things that work, some of the things that didn't work, we'll be able to fine tune in the following years, hopefully, and uh, hopefully folks continue to be interested, continue, continue to want to participate, and hopefully this will be a long and fruitful relationship between DU, myself, and all the hunters in the North America. How long? And we're going to start wrapping up here because I know y'all uh, are busy, busy people. How long has this kind of been in the works to get this ball rolling on this project? Phil's been thinking about doing something like this for probably a couple of years. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's been a long time for sure. And I guess from DU's involvement, uh, the idea came to us sometime last year. We've had Phil on our podcast a number of times. We talked about it. And I don't know, it's just one of those crazy ideas. You're like, this would be a really, it'd be really beneficial scientifically. It'd be really cool from a hunter participation perspective. And so I, I last year just started experimenting with the idea. I reached out to Phil and said, send me some vials. I want to test out the logistics of what this would look like. We hired a couple of conservation science assistants. We we're going to hire them anyway, but they came on earlier this year, Ashley Tunstall and Kai Victor. Ashley, as a matter of fact, been the lead on this project for us. We wouldn't be able to do this without them. Uh, they have provided some much needed extra capacity to make this happen. And so, you know, after I went through the hunting season and got the samples, sent them to Phil and met with our communication staff, our web team, our IT team, because they're the ones that have created that website and are building the database that's going to contain this information. I mean, there's a lot that's going into this. Uh, and then we kind of had a had a discussion, said, can we do this? And the answer was, is you sort of get to this point where you're like, go or no right. go. And we said, let's do it. And it was earlier this year we made that decision. And it's been it's been full go ever since. And we're still working on various aspects of it. So um, for, for over a year, um, we've been thinking about it and been working on it intently for the past four or five months. Yeah. Cause I'm assuming the back end of this is just a monster and a bear to create just a way of getting the data, storing the data. Like you said, just this simple, just this website right here. There's no telling how many man hours it took to get it up and running. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to think about that. Let's not talk too much about that. <laughs> it's all in the name of science. Uh, it, it is it, man. I tell you, there have been some moments where I'm like, Whoo boy, we've, we've bit off a little bit more than we can chew. Uh, but I have to give huge credit to our I, IT staff, our web team. We pushed through it and, and we are, like I said, we don't have all the information up there right now. We don't have all components built out at, at, at this present time. So it's going to just sort of be an enticement for people to check back on that website for those additional pieces of information. And, uh, yeah, it's, but I'm glad we're here. Super exciting to be to be at this at this moment, 
and I appreciate you guys covering it. That that means a lot to us. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I am I'm like I said, I am totally fascinated by all this. I am I'm I'm chomping at the bit to start seeing some of the information roll in and I mean, this is this is a really really cool thing that we've got going on here and uh I am very very excited that you guys came on here and kind of uh gave us a little backdrop on what's kind of going to go into this and how people can participate and this is the chance. This is Waterfowler's opportunities to get involved. You know, get involved and not bitch about the numbers that they see out there because they do plenty of that. Trust me, I hear it all the time. Um, yeah. I had one more thing, but I can't remember what it was, so it must not have been that important. Phil, where are you headed off to next? You said you're out of town for the next two, what, two, three weeks? Two, two weeks. I'm heading up to Denver. Denver. Uh, we're going to be at the Denver Museum uh, doing 3D scanning of uh, birds from that were shot in Colorado in 1800. Whoa! So this is this is uh, all part of our uh, try to reconstruct the history of the North American mallard and how we got to where we are now. Uh, so it's so this is a deep dive into the to the genetics and the morphology change through time across North America. So we're, we're doing that. And then uh, my wife's got a antelope tag up in South Dakota. So we're going to do that. Wow. Uh, and uh, hopefully I'll shoot a couple prairie chickens. Um, and then we're off to Bozeman, Montana, and uh, where we're going to continue this conversation with Steve Ranella and Meat Eater nice. Crew. So I'm excited about that. And then hopefully come home at some point. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll have to come home at some point and start analyzing samples, man. <laughs> how did, how did uh, they store the ducks from that long ago? Mounted them. Uh, museums. Museums? Just, yeah, they're mounted. Uh, different different museums. Uh, yeah, uh, we always have to be careful with arsenic. That was an important mm -hmm. one for uh, 1,800 birds. Uh, yeah, they're, they're stored in all the different museums. Uh, they're, they, they, they're basically a museum prep, which is a particular type, so that way they go into these uh, 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 drawers easier. And they're just, they sit there for, for as long as that museum is standing. Uh, like I said, I mean, uh, none of those studies would be possible without the hunters back then, and this, this study's not, not possible with the hunters today. So thankfully, there's been duck hunters since uh, we could finally catch one of those ducks. Uh, and so they're just stored there and we grab a piece of that webbing, like I talked about earlier in this uh, podcast. And there's just a different type of, different methodology to be able to get actual DNA out of those things. Uh, obviously a two, 200 year old specimens is gonna be a little bit more finicky than today's tongue. Right. And so, but we have the methods and, and not all of them, definitely a lot of them fail, but a lot of them also work. So we've got a lot of great data. Hopefully you'll, we'll be talking about that in, in uh, six, six to eight months about that. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, one thing I didn't know, I just learned this the other day. They put arsenic on books back in the 1800s. That's what gave books yep. the green color. So you yep. might get mm. arsenic poisoning by uh, <laughs> trying to get smarter. Yeah, but you didn't live that long. Oh, that's then. true too. <laughs> That was the best way to go back then too. Arsenic poison or like feaster, you know, famine or pestilence or raids. Like, give me arsenic poison and I'll check out at twenty five. And the more you read, the shorter your life. <laughs> right. The smarter you got, the closer to the grave you got. Well, listen, guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I encourage everybody that's out there listening right now go to duckdna.com. It is simple. There is apply today all over this website. It is not hard to sign up for this thing. 
And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the research and some of the answers that we get out of this. And I would love to continue this uh, conversation uh, whenever we get some of these results back in. It has been a pleasure, guys. Absolute pleasure. No. Thank Always Thank you so much. Thank you so yes, much. Yes, and uh, like I said, we'll continue this conversation uh, in a couple months. And you guys have a safe and productive waterfowl season. And Phil, be safe on the road. Mike, I don't know what your travel plans are this winter, but wherever you go, be safe. And uh, tell Jimbo and David I said hi if you yeah. see them. We'll talk to you guys soon. I will certainly do it. I'll track them All down. Right. Thanks, Thank guys. Thank you guys very much. Happy hunting. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Boy, I was damn sure the dumbest guy in that room. Uh, I, they started throwing out some of those words, Jeff. Yeah, mitochondria. <laughs> well, shit, that's what I mean. I remember that book in biology class, but or that word, but I don't really follow it up. I knew that book had arsenic, you know, covering on yes. it, so I didn't read that book. Boy, I wish I could go back and be young again and pay attention to education. Well, you can, Jeff. No, right now, we're doing it through the podcast. You can well, get smarter if you just expand your mind a little bit. My mind's getting old, though. It's it like it's going to be crazy. Yep. The results that they get. I can't wait I to mean, hear it. I mean, could, it could potentially change the landscape of waterfowl hunting and what we thought we knew. We're going to learn a lot. I'm excited. So go to duckdna.com right now. Get signed up for this. Totally free to you. All you have to do is apply to this, and they're going to pick some people that are going to be uh, researchers. So there is absolutely no reason that every one of you, uh, there's no reason to not do this and at least get signed up. So I'm going to put my name in the hat, and maybe I'll shoot something fun. Amen, brother. I might even throw him a little curveball. There you go. Cut a crane tongue and send it in. <laughs> Say it was a pintail. No, come back. It's a whooper. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Yep. All right, guys. Uh, be safe out there. Have a great week. And we will talk to you all later. God bless. See you. Bye. Go check out our sponsors, as always. Go check out Boss Shot Shells. Listen, to get a duck, you're going to have to shoot a duck. Do it with Boss Shot Shells. Uh, Pacific Calls, Dive Bomb Industry, Dirty Duck Coffee, Gin Gear, Looking Glass Podcast, Alpha Outdoor Specialties, Hemp Hill Farm, Sandfield Outfitters, Mossberg, Double T British Kennels, Ducks Unlimited, Lucky Duck, and MLR Practice.